Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Fitter and Faster Coaches Corner. I'm your host, as always, Mike Murray. Today, I have a very special guest. And though we are staying on the topic of swimming, this talk that I heard for the first time in 2013 was something that really uh, resonated with me. It resonated with my athletes when I came back from Colorado Springs. And to introduce everybody to my, my guest today, um, I have Coach Doug Ingram on the program with us. And Doug, you probably don't remember this because I was just a young 29, 30-year-old coach. And um, we were both giving a presentation at National Select Camp. My presentation was uh, test sets and their meaning behind them and how we do it. And I remember thinking like, please just let me go ahead of Coach Ingram because how am I gonna follow a presentation about a hike up Mount Everest? So, uh, you know, I appreciated that I got to go before you so that, you know, nobody was let down <laughs> after my presentation. But thanks so much for joining us today. And, and tell us a little bit about, about your history in the sport of swimming. You, you've played a lot of different roles in our sport. You've been on the ASCA board. You've done a lot for swimming in this country. So talk a little bit about your history in swimming. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, Mike, I'm glad you led the relay off on that uh, set of <laughs> talks for us because uh, they hid me in the middle, as you know how that works. And uh, <laughs> I can't remember who anchored it, but uh, no, I appreciate that. I, uh, I came fairly late to swimming. Um, I grew up in Texas, and when you do that and you're a male, uh, it's mandatory that you play football, so I did. Um, and then the coaches always wanted to know, what are you gonna do to stay in shape for football in the off season? Uh, so I would run track and things like that. Um, and then when I was 14, uh, in the summertime, my parents both working, needed some place to drop us off. So they dropped us at the YMCA. And come to find out, actually, I was a pretty good swimmer. I'd only swam to that point in creeks and, uh, and uh, ponds and things of that nature. But uh, first time in a pool and it worked out well. So um, I was never a great swimmer, but it did get me to and through college. Um, as I got older, I realized uh, actually going into my senior year, there was one chance I had to get a little bit of scholarship help and it wasn't gonna be football or those other sports, it was gonna be swimming. And uh, thanks to Coach Easterling, uh, I was able to get enough of a scholarship, work nights and weekends and do that kind of stuff to get through college, so it was awesome. That's fantastic. And how did you parlay that experience into coaching? Well, I went into, um, I went in pre-med, um, you know, ever since I was a young kid, my, uh, I'd always talked about being a physician and my mom was counting on it for sure. <laughs> but uh, I realized um, after my freshman year, I actually went back to that same YMCA where I'd started and I coached the little novice swim team, taught all the lessons, uh, kept the pool, did all, everything, and I loved it. I thought, ah, this is the greatest thing. But, you know, I'm gonna be a doctor. Back to school, same thing after my sophomore season in the summer. And then my junior year, it's like, I gotta make a decision here because I can go to school for another maybe 
12, 10, 12 years, become something I think I want to be, or I get out next year and be a coach, which I know I love. And that was, that's when the decision was easy. And Coach Easterling was a big part of that. He uh, encouraged me. He taught me a ton of things that got me launched into that career. What a great fortune to have somebody like Coach Easterling right out of the gate. Talk about what it was like working for him, one of the legends in our sport. Well, you know, he, he is a legend, and uh, he also uh, has quite a reputation. Um, and in those days, you could do and get away with a lot of things that you can't do and get away with now. Uh, so he really parlayed that into his form of motivation. And it taught me a lot about uh, how I wanted to motivate uh, people as well as how maybe I didn't want to motivate them. But, you know, what works for one person and coach obviously doesn't for another. You can't, you can't copy someone else and expect to have the same results. You have to take the best from each person. You have the fortune to be part of their program. No doubt about it. And, you know, you obviously took a lot of those things that you learned and put them into practice in, in your coaching philosophy, I'm sure. As a young coach, when you were first getting started, how did you balance some of the coaching and family life, coaching and personal time aspect? This is something that many of our young coaches are struggling with or learning to cope with, especially during a time of a pandemic where now all of a sudden we're on the pool deck eight or nine hours a day. What are some of the strategies that you used? And, and this is what's going to segue into your talk, because I know that being outdoors, having time to be an adventurer is very important to you. Is that something that you use to help balance the, the work life? Yeah, no, it, um, it's a wonderful question, Coach. And uh, when I was single, which was all, pretty much all the way through my 20s, it was a bit, a bit easier. Uh, and I mean, I was every break we had from the swimming season, I'm off in the mountains somewhere. Uh, South America, Europe, you know, the all over the Americas, et cetera. And that was a great uh, way for me to uh, balance out my life. Um, then I get married in the late 20s, my, in my late 20s, you know, have some kids. Things get a little more challenging at that point. Um, and really for me, um, one of the most important things was separating the family from the job. And I know it's really hard to do. But um, even after I got out of uh, coaching and moved into working with the Olympic Committee, same kind of huge long hours of commitment. But what I would do is um, literally on the, I'd have breakfast. First, I'd go to morning practice, as we all did, come back and have breakfast with the family, take the kids to school. And on that drive back from the pool to have the breakfast, I would purposely clear my mind. Okay, can't think about the team, can't think about the school or the program, got to get ready to focus on the kids and the family. And then the same thing in the afternoon, driving to the pool. Okay, can't worry about the family. You know, they might have had some challenges as we all do with children and, uh, and family, but got to get ready to, to give 100% to my team. And, you know, I don't know if if it's not easy, but for me, it was like a, that drive was the line of demarcation. Stop one, start the focus on the other. 
Absolutely. And incredibly important and, and so hard, you know, this day and age when we are accessible almost all of the time. So, you know, we're, we're handling these, these new challenges and, and you seem to have a good idea of what it took to balance out. Uh, we try to do that here in this family as well. And it, and it is certainly <laughs> important. Um, I know that you have traveled all over the world. So it would be impossible for me to ask you where you were most surprised by how much you loved the different cuisine. So right out of the gate, before we get into serious mode here, what's your favorite meal from a different culture or place? Oh my, well, having grown up in Texas, I always have to go with the Tex-Mex. And, and literally, normally that means coming back from the wherever I've been. So if I've been in Asia for a long period of time, um, wherever it might be in Europe, et cetera, it was always, my, and my wife's a wonderful cook, and she would always prepare a, a Mexican meal on, our, on the return. And that, I would even seek it out. And a lot of the times when I would, we would go to a game site in preparation uh, for the team, for the US team, and we would, you know, have time to look around and not always try to, is there a good Mexican food restaurant somewhere in this, uh, in this town or this nearby? And, Normally, I could find something that was good. Yeah, normally. I'm not a big foodie, I, I, I have to admit. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I kind of, I eat to live, but I don't live to eat. I hear you. I hear you. And were those, some of those USOC trips, uh, were they used to recruit potential uh, adventures? Uh, they did. Uh, I was able to uh, parlay that I, when I did the Everest when I went on the Everest North side back in 2006, first time, I went right after, well, I went after uh, the games in Torino winter games, but before we were having a meeting in um, Beijing with all the team leaders from the various sports. So I was able to parlay those two together. And I did that several different times over the years, um, you know, cause I mean, if you're in the neighborhood, <laughs> For me, I'm I'm going to check out the uh, the mountains. A little scouting mission, and and I I tend to do this when I have some of my guests on the program. I, I look at the office, and behind you, I I think I see some Tibetan prayer flags. Uh, I see some traditional dress. It looks like behind you. Talk to us about some of the things that you've brought back from your adventures. Well, the Tibetan prayer flags are huge. Uh, for me, because they were so important to my Sherpa. We'll talk about Finjo, my Sherpa, because literally he's the coach. You know, when I'm on Everest, he's the coach, I'm the athlete. Well, let's put athletes in quotes, but uh, I, I'm the guy that he's going to get up and down. And I don't get to the top of that mountain without him. Absolutely. I mean, just like, um, you know, I mean, Michael Phelps was going to be a great Olympian. Was he going to be the greatest Olympian of all time without Coach Bowman? Probably not. And that's the same way with the Sherpa on Mount Everest. Uh, anybody that says that they did it, but there's a couple of true professionals by themselves, they're not right. It's the Sherpa that gets it done. But anyway, uh, behind me, there's also some mementos from the various games that each sport has a pin. You've probably seen that on some of the trips you've made. So those uh, frame things are the pins from each of the sports 
that competed in each of those particular Olympic games uh, on the up on the wall behind there. And then just some things that people gave, you know, as mementos, plaques, I can't even remember. Oh, that, that's a, yeah, that's all the way back to Indian River, that one plaque there. <laughs> a lot of championships in Indian River, and, and it looks like they're still hanging on to that great tradition and kids going there swimming very well and then jumping into the bigger schools and continuing to get fast. That, that tradition was carried on from you. Well, yeah, I, you know, I was so blessed. Every place that I uh, ended up and coaching, you know, was just a phenomenal opportunity and a phenomenal bunch of athletes that I was pr privileged to coach. So yeah, that, that, that still, I mean, those guys still stay in touch. We still, we've had a couple of reunions, you know, over the years. And I think there's another one planned in 2023. So uh, <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. So uh, my confession is that uh, I have desperately wanted to get into mountaineering my whole life. Uh, I read Into Thin Air as a middle school student, and I've read several other books about the Seven Summits and, um, you know, mountaineering in general. And I've climbed all 46 high, peak, high peaks in the Adirondacks. Um, Beautiful. Yeah, and, and really enjoy it. But uh, the question that everybody asks, Coach, is why Everest? Yeah, well... <laughs> You know, you have the trite answer because it's there back from George Mallory in the 20s. Um, but, you know, it really calls you. Uh, it asks you, do you want to test yourself to this level? And that's really what got me going there. I mean, it's, a, you know, all mountains are, they're unforgiving. I mean, they, they don't care whether you're there or not. And they can crank up some weather and some other challenges that, you know, can be quite uh, in some cases fatal, but in a lot of cases very damaging to someone that's not prepared. So for me, it was um, a lifetime of thinking about and, and, and actually talking with athletes and coaches and, and even the, my staff that I worked with the Olympic Committee and all, challenging them, you know, get outside your comfort zone. Let's push. What's, how, how far can we push this? What is the limit? And so I said, you know, do I really want to find out what my limit is? And there's no better place than Everest to do that. So that was what motivated me. And about, well, now it'll be about 15 or 16 years ago to start thinking about Everest over and above the other mountains. And I'd read all the books like you were talking about, and I'd studied all the maps. I mean, I, I was a fanatic about it. And I, uh, you know, I said, okay, now's the time to find out, put your money where your mouth is. You know, can you get outside your comfort zone? Can you test yourself to this level? I, I wanted to ask you, and I'm sure you're going to talk about it, but that Kumbu ice fall, <laughs> is that as terrifying as it sounds and looks? It is. Uh, I mean, mountaineering in general and uh, Everest in particular, uh, people don't realize, you know, you have to go th through there uh, half a dozen times. It's not like you just go up the mountain and you climb and you're down and then you go back down and you're done. And so every time going through there and and, he, and the way I knew it was a, a challenge, or the most challenging parts is Finjo, my Sherpa, he would start to chant his, his, uh, his chants because he, he actually is a uh, uh, 
was raised in a monastery before he started becoming a climbing Sherpa. And so, um, yeah, he, he is very, very religious in that regard. But when he started those chants, I knew it was time to move along it as efficiently and effectively as I possibly could because this was not a good spot. It moves all the time. I mean, it moves a meter a day down the mountain. And so everything changes. Uh, each time you go through, it's a little bit different. So yeah, mountaineering is, um, you know, you go up, you, you put your hike, you put your camp one in, you go back down through the icefall, you do some resting and recuperation at base camp, you go back up, camp one, camp two, back down to base camp, et cetera. So it's like um, weeks of boredom punctuated by moments of terror. <laughs> it's like going through a main set every oh, yeah. day and that main set's a little bit different. <laughs> it is and, and tough every time, but that's, that's what makes uh, the athletes great. And that's what uh, makes us all our better selves. Well, coach, if you're ready, I, I'm ready to jump right into the presentation. So you're welcome to share your screen. All right. Tell me if it's up or not. I will. And you can take your time, Doug, because we can edit this part too. Thank goodness you're editing this so we won't have this photo to start with is pretty high up on the mountain, um, about between 20, almost 28 and a half thousand feet. Uh, those peaks you see down below are over 20,000 feet. That gives you some perspective of, of uh, where you're at. But uh, for me, and, and this goes way beyond mountaineering, but this is my career, uh, coaching uh, with the Olympic Committee, uh, my life, et cetera. And that's have big dreams, plan very well towards those dreams, and then work excessively hard to accomplish them. And, and that's really the theme of what I uh, like to convey when I talk to people about these things. And of course, I have the dedication there to Jimmy Flowers, who you know, and uh, I, he was with me, including his ashes on this mountain, as well as every other mountain I've climbed since his uh, untimely death back in 2009. Quite a photo. Yeah. So the, the big dream, you know, the miracles start to happen when you give as much energy to those dreams as you do to your fears. It's so easy to get caught up in, you know, well, guys, what could go wrong? What, you know, this is really a challenge. You know, I'm worried about this, that, and the other. But if you take that same energy and that same enthusiasm and put it towards your dreams, miracles start to happen. It's just, I mean, I've seen it all my life. I've seen it in swimming. I've seen it in other sports at the Olympic level, at the local age group and uh, club level. I've seen it everywhere. They're talking about the icefall, uh, coach, this is uh, in the icefall. And there's some of the crevasses as this one that are so wide that, uh, and the Sherpas do this. There's a whole group of Sherpas called the icefall doctors is what they affectionately call themselves. <laughs> and they set these up ahead of time, thank goodness, uh, to save us uh, the challenge. And then um, they every day they go up in the icefall. So they're in there every day for two months, making sure it's all stable and the anchors are in place and 
you know, it's as good as it can be. And but anyway, they some are so wide they have to lash these ladders together, several of them, to make it happen. And one of the things that in talking about planning well, um, my uh, the people that know me well know, of course, I'm blind in my right eye, and because of that, um, I have no depth perception. So for me, when I look down on just a regular staircase, much less a, a ladder like that, I can't tell when my foot's going to touch it. So I pretty much have to climb it by braille. I kind of make sure the foot touches. So for planning and training, I set up in my backyard, of course, with the ladders, these ones that you run up on top of your house, you know, borrowed them from my neighbors, made a whole course in my backyard and put on all my gear, including my crampons and all the stuff I had to have on the mountain and practice hour after hour back in that course, much to the chagrin of my wife and much to the amusement <laughs> of my neighbors. But uh, yeah, that uh, that's, that's the kind of planning is necessary for, especially at my age, I was 64 uh, when I made my attempt on Everest on the South side. I don't think people realize, Coach, that it's hard enough to walk on those ladders and sneakers. And when you have metal crampons on, it's a whole different ballgame. You better hit that bar exactly right. Well, and that, again, that's why I, I was absolutely the slowest guy doing it, um, for sure in our group. And, and we had a group of nine, and, in the Sherpa, and each of us had a Sherpa. Um, there's a lot of ways you can do Everest. That's the way we that I chose to do it myself and a Sherpa um, with the support of International Mountain Guides as our, our base camp and uh, logistics operator. But um, I mean, that's the way Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, that's why I chose that way. Um, so yeah, I was slow, but I had a great coach in Finjo and, and we moved along well enough to stay out of trouble and to, to make progress. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on. Um, if your dreams don't scare you, I maintain they're probably not big enough. You know, it's got to be something that's so big and scary that, you know, you, you wake up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, and, and you're almost startled about it. And as I was preparing to go to make my attempt on Everest, uh, the same thing. There were many, many times when I thought, you know, maybe <laughs> Maybe this is not the best thing to do. And, but then I'd come back to no, I want to really find out how far outside my comfort zone can I really be uncomfortable? I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. So, yeah. So, it's uh, this is some of the ladders are more vertical and others are more uh, horizontal across some of the crevasses. And I don't have one showing the spikes. You'll probably see that somewhere later on in another picture. Again, in planning, one of the real challenges is uh, being able to focus on the big picture while keeping all those little tiny details in, in, in mind. There's a lot of people that are great. They're, they're dreamers. You know, they, they can come up with the idea after idea after idea, and they're fantastic. But can they also get down to the very finite details required to make those dreams come to actuality? Uh, and likewise, there's people that are Tremendous on the details. I've, in my professional career, I've had uh, people that worked I worked with that were on both sides of that spectrum, and some had a range in the middle. But the key on on this, and, and like at your, you know, your championship meet, 
all those little details. Everything is a performance issue. That's what I would preach about. We go into every Olympic games with our staff, you know, what we did to help the athletes and coaches, everything affected performance. So you've got to be on your toes the whole time. And we have to protect that performance at whatever the cost is. If we need to put more money, more resources, more energy, more effort, we got to protect the chance at high performance for our athletes and our coaches. Whenever it's a little bit different, of course, you're dealing with perhaps the life and death, but it's still protect performance, get the details right while keeping your focus on that big picture. What a great, uh, what a great mindset for a club's board of directors or a club's ownerships or a club's coaching staff to have. Not just thinking about that in terms of the way that athletes look at their performance, but if the adults who are involved in helping these athletes reach their goals, if they're protecting performance and they're looking at it in that light, what a great mindset to have. So that's a, that's a key clip that we're going to take away from the first part of this presentation. Uh, thank you, coach. Uh, and again, it's, I mean, it's so true. It's one of those things that's so simple, but also so very, very important and so true. And you have to keep it upper mind, regardless of when, uh, you know, where you are in the process. So yeah, thank you. Um, now, this, this relates really well to athletics. I think this is on the We've moved out of the ice fall now. We're on what's called the Lhotse face. It's the mountain right next to uh, Everest that shares a, a saddle in between them. Uh, it's the fourth highest mountain in the world, uh, but it, when you're on top of Everest, it's, you know, it's 3,000 feet below you. But uh, anyway, it's, um, it's a um, face that's literally uh, anywhere from 60 to 70 degrees at some point that is a, a, an ice covered face and a real challenge. And to move up that efficiently and effectively is, is really key. Um, it, the way I relate that to swimming and other sports is, you know, it's one thing to have a lot of effort, to put tremendous effort into what you're trying to accomplish, whatever the sport is. But if it's not very efficient, then that energy and that effort gets wasted and you don't have the success you should. And then even more important, I think, is how effective that uh, is, even more so than the efficient. You can be very efficient, but maybe not move very fast. I, Coach Easterling had a great comment one time, to, and I'll never forget it, is there was a swimmer whose name, to protect the guilty, will <laughs> not mention it. He had the most beautiful stroke. It was fantastic but he wasn't, didn't move very fast. And the coach said he swims too long, too well in the same place. And uh, that's the difference between the effectiveness and the efficiency. He looked great. He moved through the water, but not terribly effective because he wasn't going forward very fast. So again, the same thing. And, and here on the Lhotse face, or, you know, to get, you have to get up that thing in a reasonable amount of time where you're going to run out of energy. So the more effective, you, if you take a step, and you slip back a little bit, there's just some wasted energy and you got to redo that step again. So it's very important, I think in all sports, mountaineering included, to be efficient, 
and even more importantly, effective in, in all your applications. Coach, you know, how, in our case, go ahead. How, how heavy is that gear that you're carrying up there? Not, not terrible. We're about, um, you know, the Sherpa's carrying twice as much as I am. So I'm, a, I'm at about 35 pounds would be my guess. Uh, and the Sherpa's, you know, Finjo's at least um, 50 to 70 pounds. I mean, he, and a lot of times, uh, and again, I have no shame in admitting this. He would say, hey, Doug, halfway through a, a day, here, let me take something out of your pack. And he'd put it in his, and his pack's already overflowing. But uh, yeah, he knew what it was going to take to to get me up this thing. He was a great coach. That's awesome. Yeah, that. This, there's a great story. One of the premier chronicler of uh, mountaineering is a guy named Alan Arnett. And uh, if you've done some research, that you may have come across his blog. But uh, Alan has um, climbed Everest. He's climbed K2. He's climbed again all over the world, but he's probably the premier guy in keeping us all informed about what's happening over there in the Himalayas. Um, this, by the way, is camp three, which is at the, about halfway up the Lhotse face. Um, and obviously, the, the, again, those unbelievable Sherpas hack out these platforms where we can put a tent. Otherwise, we can't even camp here on this spot, but we have to because this is right below what's called the death zone. So you're about 23,500 feet. Your body can still recuperate a little bit. Um, and so therefore you, you wanna spend the night there before you make your summit attempt so that you have the most, uh, you're most prepared for that. So you're, uh, anyway, still, you're sleeping kind of at, at an angle almost. Where yeah, this picture gives it a little bit awkward. Uh, there is an angle, but you're still, um, somewhat level because they've hacked out a platform there for you out of the solid ice. I mean, it's hours of work for those guys at 23,000 feet. It's amazing. Um, but what I was going to mention, Alan tells a great story about he had a young tent mate because he, he had tried a couple times on Everest um, and before his summit. And then he tells a story about having a young guy in his tent one time that says, gosh, my legs, there's something wrong with my legs. They're hurt. And he goes, uh-oh. And he, you know, what, what do you mean? He goes, well, gosh, they're just, they're so tired. So I can hardly move them. They, they feel like they want to cramp up. And he's like, okay, yeah, you're not hurt. You're hurting. And that's such a great thing for all of athletics. You know, uh, when you're really pushing yourself, whether it's in practice or at a competition, or where it, wherever it may be in life, are you hurt or are you hurting, you know? A business deal goes bad. Uh, you, somebody breaks up with you in a relationship. You, you miss a deadline. You know, all kinds of things happen, you know. Yeah, are you hurt? No, you're hurting. What do you do? You give up? No. You figure out how to deal with that, how to improve on that, and you get better. And it's just a, a, a classic story because uh, the same thing, you know, when, when uh, you're hurting, you can always find a way to get past that. If you're hurt, yeah, you got to go see somebody and get fixed, but if you're just hurting, there's a way to get past it. No doubt. This is, uh, there's Finjo there on the bottom right. Um, again, you know, like I said, he's a llama. I mean, that's, that's, how, that's how far up in the religious sector, but besides oh, wow. being a Sherpa, uh, he's also a llama. 
uh, and had did all the course courses and all to, to achieve that level in the Tibetan Buddhist faith. Uh, and right about the time he, here's how good a coach he was. There's two good stories on this. Um, first of all, you know, we trek in with the International Mountain Guides Group. They get us all in that. It's a 10-day walk just to get into base camp. And we get in there. And that's where we meet our Sherpa for the first time. And they were such a, did such a good job matching Finjo and I. A man of few words, but... When he said something, it meant it was important. It meant something you had to get it done. So we're up and down a few times on those rotations, getting our gear up high, getting ourselves acclimatized. And the last time through the icefall, we come across this very simple ladder, quite horizontal across a, a crevasse. And always Finjo would go first. He steps aside. And he says, Doug, you go first, Sherpa style. And I thought, wow, this guy that six weeks ago probably thought, man, did I draw the short straw with this old codger <laughs> trying to get him up this mountain. Now, trust me enough that I go first and belay him versus the other way around. And I thought, you know, I said, oh, gosh, Finjo believes in me. And that's what coaches do with their athletes. They have them, they help them believe not only in themselves, but in the program and what, you know, the, they, the program can do for themselves, for them. And, you know, he made me believe, yep, we can do this mountain finjo. And in the second one, it was right about the time this picture was taken. It was in between camp three and camp four. Three is at 23.5, camp four is at 26,000. You're up into the death zone. So you gotta get up there, spend, as little time as possible, make your summit bid and get out of there. But you were always slower, like I said, than most everybody, not only in our group, but that we ran into on the mountain. Um, and at this day, for whatever reason, I think it's because he had done such a good job of taking care of me, we're passing people. I mean, people are in front of us, we gain, we catch them, we ask if we can clip around them and, and get on the safety line in front of them. <clears throat> and Finjo, we're taking a rest breaker. He says, Doug, you're climbing very well. Tomorrow we summit. And I mean, I get chills telling you about it right, telling that story right now. But again, that's what a great coach does. It's like, you know, by the way, you can break the world record. You can win the Olympic medal. You can win the state championship, whatever it is. And when you believe in your coach and your coach believes in you, those magic like that happens. Um, anyway, this, this picture actually is taken from that peak Lhotse, um, looking across at Everest. That's the summit ridge on Everest. You actually come up, catch the ridge right down to the bottom there from camp four, the bottom of the ridge where it starts. And you follow that ridge line all the way up to the summit, the little peak Partway up is called the South Summit. And you drop down, then you go up two little step, steps, which are rock faces. One's called the Tenzing Step, and then the real crux of the climb is the Hillary Step. Hang on a second. You gotta stay hydrated like your athletes, right? The um, um, photo here that, you know, it's pretty intimidating to look at that and think, okay, tomorrow, <laughs> I'm going to be on there, you know, but 
if you're going to be at the top, you've got to take that route. I mean, there are no shortcuts to any place worth going. And again, something I've been an advocate of all my life. If you're going to get there, you don't, there aren't any shortcuts. You've got to take every step and stop it and go every station, every process along the way. And in fact, our um, team back at USOC, the team that I worked with, they put up in front of all the elevator. We're on the fifth floor of the building there, all of all the elevators. That quote, there's no shortcut to the, any place worth going, take the stairs. And so the whole time I'm in Ever on Everest for two months, they're going up and down the stairs to work. <laughs> I thought it was great. Uh, I, I, I'm sure I felt their energy when I was over there. Well, you were, you were keeping them healthy too back home. Well, they one of the ladies said, and this is a little bit crass, but she says, if Doug doesn't hurry him get back, I don't know if my butt's going to make it through. This. <laughs> uh, now the um, now you're now we're on the ridge. In fact, I'm on the south summit, looking across. We're about to do the Tenzing step. The folks ahead of me are, and I'm about to drop down and then start back up. But um, the, the thing of this picture that really stuck in my mind, and it applies again to athletics so well, that the margins between success and failure are just so razor thin. I mean, we know it in our sport, hundreds of a second, the gold medal versus the silver medal, third place and being on the podium versus fourth and not, hundreds of a second. Um, you know, millimeters in track and field, just all the sports, just so tight um, at, at the highest levels. And the same thing here on this mountain, you know, it's really, it's not necessarily the strongest person that's going to win each time, but who's most prepared physically, mentally, emotionally for that particular effort and challenge. And in this case, uh, you know, that's really what came to mind for me when I, when I saw this picture, I don't remember, you know, I saw it afterwards after taking. I mean that, what are you telling yourself when you look at that Ridge and I'm sitting here <laughs> I just, I'm not sure what my self-talk is. And, and we talk to our athletes all the time. We talk to our staff about self-talk. What are some of the things that you're telling yourself as you're getting ready to do that? I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up, Coach, for two reasons. One is, I, I'm going to back up just a little bit, and then I'll get to that answer. Um, one of the things I should have mentioned, again, and part of the plan well, Again, I'd read all the books, looked at all the maps, studied the photographs of other people's expeditions, et cetera. So, and when I'm moving through the process, I mean, literally from the time I landed in Kathmandu through the trek up the mountain, I'm always thinking, okay, what is the next landmark? What's the next benchmark? And I had never been there before, but I come across something like the yellow band or the you know, the uh, Triangle Face, the Geneva Spur, all these famous landmarks on the climb. And it's like I have been there. I'm thinking, oh yeah, there's the yellow band. Yeah, I remember, no wait, I don't remember because I've never been here, but it's that whole visualization process. You know, the psychologists have talked to us about this forever, but I experienced it firsthand, vividly to my core in that, I mean, it was like deja vu, it's like, I've been here before. 
No, I have been here in my mind, but that doesn't make any difference because I can take, I can handle this. And, and also having those smaller steps. Okay, I made it to base camp. Good job. If I don't go any higher, great trip. Uh, go back home. I've been through the icefall. I've been up the Lhotse face. I've been across the yellow band. All those little things are the same process that we all go through with our athletes, the stepping stones to the big goal, the smaller intermediate goals that get us to the big goal. Now, what you're thinking about here on this one, again, in my, you know, you're really self-contained because you have an oxygen mask on um, and you're, especially in my case, my light, eyesight was even more limited than normal because I kept, uh, uh, my goggles kept freezing. Uh, and when I'd have to take them off and scrape them, and then they would narrow down and a little small, okay, I got to clean them again because I got to be able to see better. But anyway, you're really amongst yourself and you have to decide, you know, what is the goal? Is it really, really worth it? And I think we'll talk a little bit about that in just a second on another slide as well. But that to me was what, okay, I've gotten to here. Is it worth the effort to get across and make the, uh, the uh, you know, as you say, that's an intimidating thought there. Um, mountaineering is really a simple sport. You put one foot in front of the other and you don't fall and then you succeed. I mean, that's the essence of the sport. Um, and here it's 10,000 feet down to Tibet on the right and it's 8,000 feet down to Nepal on the left. So again, one foot in front of the other, don't fall. That's really all my thought was. It's a little bit like we talked about clearing your mind from the pool to get ready for the family at home, clearing the mind from the family to get ready for the pool. Keep your mind totally mind. You gotta be mindful of exactly what it takes. Take a step, clip in, move your ascender up, take a step, Move your sender, take a step, clip out, those kind of, you just, you can't make any mistakes. That's that's the razor thin margin. And it's the same again in athletics. You know, one small uh, mishap on the turn and you're not the gold medalist. You know, Phelps and Cava and the 100 fly. You know, Cava comes short, Phelps stretches out, he wins eight gold medals, otherwise he doesn't. You know, it's it's just, that's the whole difference between success and failure at the highest levels. And that's what we do in sport. It's what you coaches do with your athletes all the time. I hope that answered your question. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And what a great visualization for athletes too. Just keep going one step at a time. Yeah, you, you anticipate this so well, coach. I'm moving right into the next one, which is, you know, Part of the, you start out at night because it, the mountain's a little more stable then, and you need to get off before the storms come in in the afternoon. So you're climbing through the night, uh, you know, up until you get up onto the ridge and then uh, daylight, you can see daylight coming up behind my climbing partner there uh, in the first picture on the left. And then again, the Cornish Ridge on the right as, you're, as he's moving across, I'm a little bit ahead of him at that point. But these are the things when we talk about, is it hard or is it impossible? Uh, that same great mountaineer, Alan Arnett, that I mentioned earlier, he has a good one on, on this one too, about is it hard or is it impossible? And 
you know, the same thing. So many things you hear every day, somebody says, oh, that's impossible. Well, is it? You know, if it was, there's so many things that wouldn't have gotten done in not only sports, but in everything, the moonshot. Was it impossible for President Kennedy to say, after we've been beaten by the Sputnik and we're so far behind that we will get to the moon this decade and bring a man safely back and we'll learn all the great things that that entails and we'll do it not because it's easy, because it's hard. And that's what's the great thing. And, and that's where you have to decide, okay, here I am on this summit ridge of Everest, you know, it's probably three or four breaths for every step. I mean, it's slow progress. Uh, and I'm talking about, you know, it, someone's asked me for what's it like breathing at altitude? And the best description you can give them is it's like breathing through a straw. You can ever get quite enough oxygen in to satisfy, but you have to pull as hard as you can to get as much as you can. And then you do several breaths and then you take another step and then some more breaths. <sighs> And then another step, and it, it's just, and and that's when you say, is it, is this impossible? And that's the big decision on all mountains. It's the big decision in life. If this impossible, or is it just really, really hard? And is my goal still there, and I can still strive towards it? Incredible. And again, everything is against you. There's, you know, the winds howling. We're you know, sunny, looks great, but it's about <laughs> 25, 30 below in the temperature. And the wind's coming about 25, 35 miles an hour from the west. And so it's it's about 60 below wind chill. So yeah, it's, it's going against, like I said, my, my eye was struggling because I, I keep taking my goggles off, scraping the ice, and it was my cornea was starting to freeze. And when you only got one, you need that, that good cornea. And so it's just, everything's going against, and there's a thousand reasons. And this is in life, this is in sports, this is in swimming. There's a thousand reasons to stop. Okay, I can't do this set. I can't accomplish this goal. But there's one reason to keep going. And that is that goal. And that's what is inside each and every person. And if you believe in that goal, and if you have done the preparation necessary, then you can keep going. And like I mentioned before, you can always take one more step. I mean, we're looking at the Hillary step there in front of us, or the Tenzing step, and then next beyond, that's the Hillary step. And then we got the summit. That's all that's left. But I'm still almost three hours away because I'm you're moving slow. And I'm thinking, okay, can I make it to the top? I don't know. Can I take one more step? Sure. All right. Can I make it to the top? Not sure. Can I take one more step? Yeah. So it's just one foot in front of the other. Don't fall. I mean, some of the challenges that you're talking about there, you know, it, when I first heard this talk and I relayed some of it to our athletes at the time, I remember saying very clearly, because you've said this before, I was worried about my cornea freezing and I was still taking another step forward. <laughs> It's hard, I think, to compartmentalize that moment, but not only are you worried about your cornea freezing, but you know, it's 30 below. You're you're almost at 29,028 feet at the top, right? It changes maybe a little bit every year. 
<laughs> yeah, the, still growing. It's a little yeah, higher than when I was there. The the wind at, at how cold are you physically at this point in time? Well, again, it's something that um, I get kidded about all the time because I use it a lot. You know, there's really no bad weather. There's only bad gear, bad clothing. And these suits are amazing. Uh, these, these what they call an 8,000 meter suit because they use them on the 8,000 meter peaks. Um, and so, yeah, the, the challenge is not getting anything exposed to that. And the problem with my cornea was the wind coming from the West constantly, me taking my goggles off to clean them and then that cold air before I could get them back on. And then later we'll talk about another mistake, another cardinal sin that I made, but uh, we'll, We'll hit that in a second, but those are the things, you, you know, you're really, you can, you can handle it if you have the right gear, if you're moving along well enough, if you have to get, if you have to stop, and on the way down, we did get stuck at the top of the Hillary step, and, and, and my fingers still talk to me about that, but um, as long as you're moving, and as long as you have the right clothing, you can handle it. I mean, it's not easy, right. but that's why we do it. Because it's not easy. It's a, that's the beauty of it. The harsh hardness is beauty. And again, I, just to throw a couple more things. You know, some days you have fun, and some days you build character. And this is a character building day on the summit day. I mean, going through that ice fall is a character building day. And you know, you just have to look at it that way. That yeah, this. Wouldn't, most people wouldn't put this in the fun category, but I'm building some character here. I'm testing myself. I'm going to find out how close to my physical limit I can get. And this segues into our nice quote here. This is Mahatma Gandhi. Strength comes from the, does not come from the physical capacity. It comes from an indomitable will. Uh, obviously, he exhibited that throughout his life. This is on the Hillary step and literally... I desecrated the memory of Sir Edmund Hillary trying to get myself up that thing. Because <laughs> Yar, you talked about the crampons, that metal spikes. Now it's metal spikes on rock, which is even more challenging than, or just as challenging as on ladders. And, uh, you know, here in Colorado, if I had to go up a, a 50 foot rock face, yeah, okay, no big deal. But at 28,500 feet, yeah, it's a big deal. So quite a challenge to make that happen. Arguably the, the most technically challenging part or is the Kumbu Icefall harder? The, for me, this was harder. Um, and even though it's such a short period, the, Kumbu, the uh, Icefall is more dangerous, I think, because here again, you have the lines both for ascending and rappelling back down. So as long as you don't make a mistake and you have to be careful because your oxygen, your brain's not getting quite the oxygen you normally do. So don't make a mistake and not clip in. And people have, have made that mistake on this. And I mean, who I'm impressed with is Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, Sherpa. They had to do it before, they had to came across this and do it, nobody had ever done it. Was it impossible or really, really hard? It was really hard because they made it up, but they did it without the knowledge of what's beyond this. So quite a, quite the challenge. Um, it's changed though, you know, uh, Mike, the um, earthquake, in fact, the biggest rock there that you're looking at to my left, it fell during the earthquake in 2015. So 
now they call it the Hillary snow ramp because <laughs> literally in most seasons, it's just a ramp of snow up there. The, the steepness has really been uh, lessened because of that uh, particular earthquake. It's a dreamscape. Yeah. Uh, so once you cross the Hillary step, that's really the crux, like I said. Uh, then it's just a matter of that one step in front of the other for another hour uh, for the last 400 feet. <laughs> but if you can imagine taking, that's a once around the track, you know, so <laughs> once around the track, I mean, uh, not even once around, we're meters of the track, so 400 feet, quarter of the way around the track, one hour. But uh, anyway, another story. The, uh, you're on top, uh, there's no more steps. It's like, oh, I'm here. And that, that's of course the flag, the Olympic flag that the athletes from the training center had signed. And here's the cardinal sin, look at my hands. I see that. Because of the wind, I couldn't get, I couldn't hang on to the flag and get it stretched out. And I had some photos I was holding up for a picture, another picture. I had Jimmy's ashes I was trying to get spread without causing a commotion on that. So I took my gloves off to hold this up and to get those other things done, literally less than five minutes, but I paid the price uh, later. And I did not realize that it happened until I saw the photo, because Finjo took the photo and I said, wait a minute, I got my gloves off. What a doofus. Yeah, so, but here's the thing about, you know, I'm on the summit less than 10 minutes. When an athlete wins the Olympic gold medal, when an athlete wins the state championship, whatever it might be, they're on the podium three or four minutes. But there's, in my case, in their case, decades of dreaming, years of preparation, months of planning, weeks of pain, days of the climbing, hours of waiting just for that 10 minutes. Is it worth it? Yeah, because it's not those 10 minutes. It's those decades before. It's not the gold medal. It's all it took to get yourself to that place. It's the journey along the way, not the actual uh, summit itself. So that's my reflection back to sport on that one. What, what were the emotions, Doug, uh, when you're sitting there and, and you realize that, you know, not only did you accomplish this at, at an age that most people won't ever even think about climbing Everest, <laughs> But just a lifetime of, you know, all of your adventures culminating in, in this moment. Were you able to appreciate that? Well, first of all, my most emotional point was uh, when I got over the Hillary step and I could see people on the summit. And literally, I thought I was having a heart attack. And my heart started pounding. I couldn't breathe. And come to find out my oxygen had frozen up a little bit. And so Finjo gives me a slap upside the head to break the ice away from my oxygen uh, filter. So, but anyway, along with that, I was so emotional about, I might climb Everest. This is, this could happen. I can see the, the top. You know, that's when I really was getting emotional. Once I got to the top, again, it took so much more effort just to get there that I was so tired. My eye had really gotten blurry. My hands were getting cold, which I now know why. I thought, Finjo, let's get these pictures. We got to get down. <laughs> because, again, you know, Ed Vesturis, you may have read some stuff he's done. He has a great comment. Getting to the top is optional. 
getting down is mandatory. And that's what I committed to my family and friends was, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to try to summit, but I'm going to come home safely. So yeah, we had, I, we had to get out of there and that goes right into the next one because the clouds are, you can see on the upper right, the clouds are starting to come in because that's what happens as the day progresses and it's getting work, the conditions are deteriorating. There's me and my beautiful green uh, Kermit the Frog suit on the right. <laughs> that's me coming into base camp four days later. Can't even take the last step up into the, what's called the Himalayan Rescue Association tent to get checked out, uh, hospital they run there at base camp. But anyway, you know, I'm at a point where hands are frostbit, corneas frozen, legs are trashed. I mean, I've never been so tired in my life. I had to reach down to some place I had never even touched and grab hold of it. I had to feel things that I had never felt before. Where's that, how deep in that res reservoir can I go? I got to get really deep in order to get this done, which is something, of course, I had never done up and down the mountain. So again, you know, when you think that's it, no. There, the human body is amazingly adaptable and trainable and it, it can do things that are so amazing. You can reach a little deeper and dig a little deeper. So that was, that was the thought I had there. And the other one I have is that it doesn't have to be fun to be fun which I know sounds goofy, but you know, you can go to Disneyland. Yeah, that's a lot of fun, but also doing something that's so challenging with a group of people and a coach like Finn Joe that you so much respect and you trust with your life on the rope. That's also really fun. And you have to find out those things are just as fun as going to Disneyland. So it doesn't have to be fun to be fun. Uh -oh. Amazing, amazing. And and when you come down and you, I can only imagine that Finjo has a sense of pride for getting people up there. And uh, I, I know that I'm uh, that knowing you, I know you were super appreciative. Do they, <laughs> is it just like another, is it like a, a typical Tuesday for those guys? They're, they're just so acclimatized to that environment. Well, I, I, that's good. I'm glad you asked about Finjo because he really is a he and all the Sherpas are, they're the heroes on the mountains, not us, not the guys that, that go up at uh, the Westerners in particular. It's, it's really the, the, um, or the Sherpa, they're the hero. He was born and lives in a village called Fortsey at 13,000 plus. So obviously he's got a, a natural and, and, and his people, the Sherpa people have always lived at those altitudes. So there's a lot of heredity there behind them. Um, but just to give an example, he's carrying twice as much as me for sure. Uh, he's always waiting on me each day, each belay point or protection point to the next. And he doesn't even put his oxygen mask on until we're at camp four at 26,300 feet. I asked him, I said, Finjo, you need your oxygen? No, no, I'm fine. I put it on later. We, we save just in case you need it. I mean, and these guys, and, and that's the thing that's a shame. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to do it this way, because uh, again, Hillary and Tenzing Norgay Sherpa did it this way. But also, you're the decision maker. The Sherpa, they will 
tell you, hey, this is dangerous. We should turn back. And this has happened so many times. It, 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 turn, it makes me sick to my stomach to think about people doing this. But people, no, I want to go to the top. We keep going. The Sherpas will actually walk to their death. They won't turn around. The, the climber makes that decision in if you're doing the Sherpa uh, classic style climb. So I was so respectful of him and the fact that I would say, well, what do you think, Sherpa? He, uh, Finjo. And he would always give me an opinion, but say, but you decide, Doug. It's like, no, that's why I asked you, you're going to decide because you know. They're just so good at this stuff. They're they're unbelievable. He, um, yeah, I, I still support him and his family with some uh, with a some donations to help his kids in school because that's what's really important for them is is uh, getting an education and you know he's he's got one girl in university and and two kids in uh, what would be our high school down in Kathmandu and it's expensive, um, sure. but that's why he's a climbing Sherpa because they make. Um, about 10 times the annual salary of a, of a Nepalese just in the three months they're on the mountain. And then they do their other things uh, along the way as well. So yeah, they're, they're amazing people. A couple of myths I wanna dispel, because you see these pictures, I know you've seen it if you've been you know, checking the literature and all out. Oh, it's so crowded up there. Yeah, there's a couple of pictures. One was 2012, the year before I went. One was, I think, 2016, 2017, and even this last year up on the near the Hillary Step, uh, on the corner on the summit ridge, where it's backed up. Well, that's because, you know, you can only climb this on certain days, and we were very fortunate. There were about nine or ten days that season that were summitable, whereas those other years it was two, three days max. So everybody went the same time. It's a huge mountain. I mean, Finjo and I, granted, we always left before everybody else because we knew we'd be slow, but we were alone far more than we were around people, far more. So it's not, it, it can get crowded at some of the bottlenecks. And it's gotten worse, unfortunately, because some the outfitters and, and, uh, and uh, companies that organize these things are not as qualified and they're letting people do it that shouldn't be up there, to be honest, to be frank about it. So it's that's slowing everything down and bottlenecking it up. But it's not it's not like those pictures show. That's one day out of 50 years versus on the two months I was up there, didn't see as many people at all. Um, the other is the trash. I until we got to camp four, I yeah, you'd see a candy wrapper blow out of somebody's hand every once in a while, or I saw a couple of old rusty tin cans at Camp Two. I thought, oh, I'm sure they're from Tenzing, Norgay, and Hillary. <laughs> Sorry, I meant Hillary. <laughs> no. But anyway, just, you know, it washed up out of the glacier, it bubbled up out of the glacier. <clears throat> but it's clean. It's much cleaner than what people always say that it's a dump, it's a trash heap. Now, the earthquake made it a little less, had a little more, added a lot of trash because the destroyed tents, destroyed infrastructure, and they haven't been able to get it out. They've done a couple of efforts to get it out and they're gonna to have to keep doing that. But from camp four and up, you can't. I mean, it, it freezes the, the tents that get destroyed by the wind, the bodies that are left there, people that die, they can't bring them down. I mean, it's too dangerous on the rescuers, too dangerous. And so it's, 
it's tough from the in the death zone from the camp four and up. Yeah. So anyway, I like to dispel those myths because people always say, well, yeah, why would you climb something that's so crowded and so trashy? It's like, well, it's not crowded and it's not trashy. It can be, but it's not always. From from an athletic getting on a soapbox there, coach. No, no, that, that's great. And and listen, if we can educate people through this uh, dynamic, uh, I'm all for it. Is it a fair comparison to say from an athleticism standpoint that uh, Sherpas are professional athletes? Oh, absolutely. And coaches, professional athlete, professional coaches. Uh, and I, that's the way I consider them as, and, and there are some, there's a few mountaineers around the world that are professionals as well. You know, we, we all know their names, they're famous and they do the amazing things. Guys like me, you know, we're amateurs. We, you know, I'm like a master swimmer. I mean, I, you know, I'm a rank amateur. I, I don't make the top of that without Finjo. Yeah, unbelievable. I'm sure there's a lot of lessons coaches can learn from from reading some of the things about Sherpa culture and the, the, the pride that they have for the job that they do. Yeah, they're very compassionate. I mean, it's a huge balance between strength and humility because they will never, ever talk about how good they are. You know, and they are great. In fact, they always downplay that, uh, you know, well, you did it, Doug. No, Finjo. We did it, but really, I couldn't have done it without, you could have done it without me, but I couldn't have done it without you. So yeah, the, 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 the strength and humility is just what a counterpoint those two things are, those, that Sherpa people. Absolutely. So my last one here, and that's a, that's a typical doorway on the trek out. Uh, one of the villages and you know I'm, I'm thinking there you know this whole experience you know you learn from what you had experienced in the past you live for the day I had to stay in the moment had to be mindful I couldn't get ahead of myself really had to focus and then you have this gives you hope for tomorrow for what anything can happen you know and so as long as you're improving and striving and seeking you know, you're, you're living a great life. Um, doors, as in this door in the Sherpa house here, they're there for people to open. There are thresholds that people can cross. And I, people always say, you know, how is Mount Everest? Well, it's not for everyone, but for everyone, there is an Everest and they can seek it out. And I challenge and, and ask people to do that. Get out there and find your Everest, whatever it may be, and you'll be a better person and people around you be better for it. So namaste. Absolutely. I think a, a lot of coaches can relate to that last quote that you have there. And we say often in our program, everybody's not going to be an Olympian, but we can be Olympic with everything that we do. And uh, brilliant. brilliant. Yeah, I, I, I just I, I see so much in that. And uh, I really appreciate that thought. My pleasure. Um, and Doug, if you want to bring yourself back to the screen, that would be great. Yes, sir. Maybe. And Coach, there? yeah, what are what are some of the things that you know you brought back to? Uh, we know that you share this great story with the athletes at National Select Camp every year, um, and and you've shared it with many coaches. What are some things that you brought back from the experience that? that have nurtured your life or enriched your life uh, back at home? Uh, another great question, coach. And 
for me, um, having gone through that experience, I feel so grateful uh, to have had the opportunity to, to have it, to have the uh, experience I had. Uh, the summit really, again, it's not that important. I mean, most people think that's the big deal. You know, you, know, you go there to climb the mountain. Yes, you do. But what you did to prepare for that, what you learned along the way on the trek, on each part of the climb, being a part of the, we call it the brotherhood and sisterhood of the rope, being part of that galvanized team. Uh, I've always been a team person. Swimming, people always say, yeah, it's not a, it's an individual sport. Not the way swimming does it. Swimming takes an individual sport and makes it a team effort. And to me, that's the beauty of it. And, and I, coming back, you know, everything I want to do is how can we collectively get better? What can we do as a team, as a family, as friends, neighbors, et cetera, to all improve uh, and not have uh, the disparity that we sometimes see uh, across our, our great country? Well, you know, 2020 has been an Everest of sorts for, for many <laughs> of us. And uh, I, I know that, you know, you, you have a lot of experience in how some of these things play out on a global athletic standpoint. So, you know, when we, when we look at Tokyo, it's going to take a, a tremendous effort. Talk a little bit about how you think uh, our, our country is going to handle this and, and, and the world, really. How are we going to handle this, this challenge moving into Tokyo? Yeah, Tokyo is, I mean, a challenge is mild. I mean, it's going to be a very challenge. And getting ready for Tokyo has and will continue to be an even greater challenge. But I have tremendous optimism about Team USA because nobody is better at handling adversity, being innovative, handling the challenges. You know, the Olympics, uh, the, every championship, every high moment, you know, it's a world of distractions. There's so many distractions, but nobody's better than our group of athletes and our group of coaches at getting down to the essence is what's it gonna take? What are the key points that are gonna help us succeed at the Olympic games? Nobody's better at it. So we're gonna, we'll be just fine. I mean, Tokyo will be very hard to, for anybody and everybody that's uh, striving and gonna be there, but I have ultimate faith that we're gonna come out on top as usual. Well, Doug Ingram, it's been such a pleasure to have you on. I'm so thankful that we were able to squeeze you in this busy holiday week. Uh, we really thank you for your time. We'll have this whole episode available both on the Fitter and Faster YouTube channel and on our Fitter and Faster website. Coach Doug, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. I'm really looking forward to getting this out to people and uh, we wish you the best this year. Coach Mike, uh, you and your family, uh, I have a very, very happy new year and uh, we look 20, 2021 will be better. We all know that. So we just got to get through it. So keep up the great work, coach. You're doing such a wonderful job, both at the local level. And then uh, I really admire what you're doing with ASCA. Thank you so much, coach. And we hope to see everybody again next week. Thanks again, coach Doug Ingram. And we will see you all very soon. Bye-bye now.